Welcome back to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. I'm Nick Skinner, and with Danny Beswick and Tim Cutler both away this week, I'm joined by a guest co-host, Andrew Nixon, a man who's been writing and indeed podcasting about cricket since before Emerging Cricket even started. A great pleasure to have you with us, Andrew. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here again after yeah, quite yeah, a while since I was last on, but it's always good to, it's good to talk about social cricket. Yeah. Now, this week we have a lot to cover. Uh, obviously, we have the Netherlands uh, still going at the World Cup, and we might touch on the fact that it's still going and barely halfway through the group stage. Um, there's Ireland and Scotland's women's cricket series, Namibia and Zimbabwe are playing some T20s, uh, there's the Nepal Tri-Series, and of course leading into the Asia Qualifier. So let's start with the Netherlands World Cup campaign. Uh, two matches have been played since the last time we recorded, but there's also the match against Bangladesh ongoing, so that should probably tell you when we're recording. Um, the first game they played against Sri Lanka disappointing in the end they had an opportunity to get the better of Sri Lanka they posted a decent total and just kind of squandered it their bowling was a bit wayward the game against Australia obviously um, probably the less said about that one the better losing by 300 plus runs not too many positives to take out of that one uh, what did you make of the Netherlands performances uh, in, the, in the last week well you know, the game against Sri Lanka I suppose went started in a similar way to the game against South Africa where they had a sort of top order sort of collapse and then the a low order partnership rescued them this time Engelbrecht and Van Beek put on you know a, a big century partnership and Engelbrecht was 70 Van Beek with 59 and I think 262 I think was should have been a defendable target but Samarik Rama scoring unbeaten 91 to sort of take the game away from them and they just couldn't get the wickets. They just weren't getting that sort of penetration with, with the ball. And I'm surprised Bazdalida, although he was expensive, only bowled three overs. Um, he you know, he is the sort of bowler who I think can come back from a, a bad start to his bowling. So I'm surprised he didn't come back for more overs towards as you know, Sri Lanka were chasing down that target. But you know it is what it is you know, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a close game, but it, you know, Sri Lanka didn't thrash the Netherlands, so you know, it wasn't a particularly one-sided game. But then Australia, I mean, yeah, as you say, the less said about that, the better. You know, but your know, Glenn Maxwell's done that against you know far better bowling attacks than than the Netherlands. So you know, when he's in that sort of mood, he's he's unstoppable. He's one of those sort of players, and. You know, plenty of teams have been thrashed in this World Cup, and you know we can just ask England about that. Yeah, I think there's only been well, I mean, it sort of depends how you define a close game, but there, there's been barely a handful of them, and the Netherlands has actually provided a few of them actually. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I think just going back to that Sri Lanka game, you know, the spinners all bowled tidily. Uh, Rula Fundamova, Ian Dutt was very, very good. Three for forty-four from him. He he was very difficult to get away. Even Colin Ackerman. Only when it's sort of four and a half and over. So, you know, it's kind of interesting that the the pace bowlers were the ones. You know, pace on the ball was maybe what was required for the Sri Lankans to get going. Uh, Logan Van Beek as well. I mean, <laughs> he he had a very good outing with the bat, but he couldn't really back it up with the ball, which is interesting because for him, often when he does well in one discipline, the confidence carries through to the other, and and he has a, a good day with both. So that was that was kind of notable. I, yeah, I, I think also you know the fact that the Netherlands top order keeps collapsing and they keep putting the lower order in this position where they 
need to dig up a, a miraculous partnership. You know, you, that's not a sustainable model for winning matches because, you know, a guy like Scott Edwards can only pull out a, a miraculous innings so many times. And, and, you know, eventually when you have guys with the quality of, you know, Vikram Singh, Max O'Dowd, Colin Ackerman, Bas that's a pretty good top four. And so far... They haven't really fired. They've had a couple of sort of knocks between them, but they, they haven't really got going all at once to, to set up a really solid total, which is a real problem for the Netherlands because, they, you know, even in the game against South Africa, as you say, they started off really on the back foot there with, with losing their top order, and it took something really special from from the tailenders. Yeah, you know, we we know what Baz Delida can do. We saw it in the in the qualifier when he's got that century to to get them into the into the World Cup. So it's it's not as if they're a poor top order. They're just all having a poor run of form all at the same time. And when that happens, it's 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 uh, it's tricky to sort of get out of that, isn't it? And I guess one question that I would have is, where do you see Tejan Nidimanuru in this team? Because you know he he's played every game so far. He I don't think he's got more than maybe 20 in the whole tournament. Yes, he hit that century against the West Indies, which got them over the line. So I can very much understand the sort of loyalty towards him in this tournament. But at the same time, especially against Sri Lanka, you know, Wes Barisi was smashing the Sri Lankan spinners in the qualifier before he stupidly ran himself out. But, you know, in, in terms of the actual quality, I think... Baresi would have been a much better option than Nidmanur, and they've they've shuffled their order around a little bit a couple of times. You know, Engelrecht's gone up, Nidmanur's gone down a bit. It, it, I just, I guess, I would say Nidmanur is you'd think on his last chance, maybe. But I mean, maybe they're just going to stick with the same lineup throughout the whole comp. Yeah, I mean, against Australia, he was he batted at seven. He doesn't ball, and that, you know, that is the sort of place you put a player who you don't really know what to do with, isn't it? And hmm. yeah, and. I, I, I would have picked Baresi ahead of him, I think, and I would be interested to see if they do make any changes. I'm, I haven't looked at the, score, the team against the, playing against Bangladesh, as soon as we're recording now, I'll just have a quick look, and he isn't playing. Oh, there you go. Baresi is in against Bangladesh, and at, at the time of recording, I scored 35 or 31 balls. I promise I didn't look at that before I made that comment. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, a bit of a yeah live live commentary for us there from from us. Um, so yeah, obviously that's a, <laughs> you've uh, made a good uh, suggestion there. And yeah, Ryan, Ryan Cook's Ryan Cook's been listening to the podcast. That's good. Yeah, um, but um, I think you oh, and and even in this game against Bangladesh, yeah, three and zero for Vikram Singh and Max Adad, you really want more from them because those guys have come together over the last year or so as as a pretty good opening partnership and and they do bring something slightly different you know Vikram Singh hits a lot of boundaries in the power play Max Adad kind of starts a little more solidly and then builds towards an, an aggressive end of his innings so I, I think they're a good combination they're both very talented batters and it is just a real shame that they haven't really got going so far this World Cup and been able to to provide a good start yeah i don't know if it's just the case of that they're not used to the conditions or uh, obviously the netherlands don't play in india or in asia in general very often um obviously they play mm. in the uae a lot but that, that's those are very different conditions than in the, than the subcontinent and yes as you say the the match against australia you know, that sort of thing happens sometimes to, well, I mean, especially to weaker teams, but even to, you know, anyone, really. <laughs> Maxwell just gets going. Yeah, so slightly disappointing that the Netherlands haven't been able to grab a second win, but I don't know, maybe we're just being a bit greedy with their, their World Cup campaign because it already feels like, because this World Cup's gone on for so long, that the win against South Africa was months ago. 
It it does, and it, 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 the the World Cup it, it it drags so much, and I got into it with a few people on on um, the website formerly known as Twitter. I made the what I thought was a perfectly sensible suggestion that you know when a team like England that's lost four out of five games and is still technically in contention for the semi-finals that's the sign of a bad format for a world cup and oh no that's a sign of a good format I'm like, what are you talking about it's you've got to make sure that the best teams have enough chances to qualify and well if they're the best teams they don't need lots of chances to qualify do they or they're gonna take the first chance and, and qualify straight away and, and i think you know we, we, we're seeing several problems with the format um that you need teams to screw up and play badly for a while to be able to actually get a good finish to the group stage and you shouldn't really need that in a good formatted World Cup. You should see teams that do badly are eliminated early and teams that do well qualify early and we take, I think I worked out, it's like 97% of the tournament to eliminate eight teams and that's just silly. Yeah, as you say, I mean the format Rewarding uh, the so-called best teams uh, who stuff up early and then maybe make a recovery. I'm not sure about that. And the fact that you basically need that to happen for the format to be interesting is is kind of the problem. And I guess, yeah, we've discussed format a lot. But, I mean, the 10-team format is just not very good because (laughs) even leaving aside the inclusivity side of things, having big group stages means there mathematically are going to be a lot of dead or semi-dead rubbers coming into the the back end of the group stage, which is the opposite of what you want, really, because the the end of the group stage should be when things are getting exciting. But as it is, the end of the group stage is when you're pulling out your net run rate calculators and saying, well, if team A beats team B, but not by too much, then maybe team C could beat team D. And then, you know, all this nonsense. Whereas if you have a, a, a more simple format with you know, things like playoffs and, and repechage and whatnot, then a fan who's following their team, all they need to do is know that their team needs to beat another team and then they're through or they lose and, and they go home. And I don't know, it, it, it just is fundamentally silly that a tournament is being played in a league format because they're two different things. Yeah. And it's quite strange to me that the league format is viewed as, you know, a strength by some people. Um, well, it allows the best team to win. Well, I mean... We already have rankings to determine who the best team is over a long period of time of consistent cricket. If you're trying to determine the best team over a long period of time of consistent cricket, you're not holding a tournament. Well, as we say, the Netherlands against Bangladesh match is ongoing, so we'll just leave it there for now and move on to a series that has recently finished. Uh, Scotland played against Ireland in Spain, the facilities in the south of Spain, where they have some very nice grounds and basically doesn't rain very much. So a lot of teams do come and and, and play in Spain, Uh, especially when it might be raining back in their country, as it probably is uh, in autumn in Scotland and Ireland. So the women's teams from Scotland and Ireland played a three-match ODI series, which was Scotland's first ODI series uh, since they were awarded ODI status by the ICC a couple of years back. And then the two teams uh, stuck around for a two-match T20I series. The ODI series went 2-1 to Ireland. Scotland, as we discussed last week, recorded their first victory in an ODI for 20 years since they beat Japan in, in 2003. So congratulations for them, but they weren't quite good enough to win the series with Ireland coming back and winning the next two games. And the T20I series was shared uh, one all. And although you know Scotland have beaten Ireland several times in the past in, in T20I cricket, so... 
maybe a bit more meaningful that they won in the longer format, um, but also worth pointing out that Catherine Bryce scored 50s in every game of that ODI series. Sarah Bryce also chipped in with a lot of runs. They are very reliant on the Bryce sisters still. Hannah Rainey, though, bowled very well uh, for Scotland, uh, took a 5 for. Uh, I think she got eight wickets overall in, in the series. Um, yeah, very impressive effort from her. So, you know, if, if they can develop a bit more talent with the ball, that probably helps because they're also reliant uh, on, on Catherine Bryce for wickets in a lot of matches too. And then, yeah, in the T20s, uh, they were you know, bowled out for 91 in the first game, which the Irish chased down pretty comfortably with, with, with the Gabby Lewis half-century. And then the second match, uh, they restricted Ireland to a chaseable uh, 117, and they chased it down in the last over, but pretty comfortably, two wickets down. And Sarah Bryce, again, 57 not out, leading the chase. So overall, I, I think a pretty good series for Scotland, but it does once again show how reliant they are on the Bryce sisters. Uh, yeah, it does. I'd, you know, I'd be interested to see if you know, Kirsty Gordon ever returns to this Scotland side, because that would certainly shore up the bowling a little, but I think she's still got hopes of playing for England, which is you know the next sort of cab off the rank for, for that that England bowling attack. So I think she's still, although she is now re-eligible for Scotland, obviously playing for Scotland now would now make her ineligible for England because she's played for Scotland first. Yes, I think Scotland will be happy with the performance across the two series. Oh, it's a little disappointing for a, when a two-match T20 series finishes one-one. Um, yeah, you know, I think we'd probably like to have had a have had a decider for that series. Unfortunately, that wasn't scheduled. Um, obviously, prioritising the ODIs there. Good to see Scotland actually playing some ODIs. I'm surprised they've taken you know as long as they have done to to play those. And good to see them pick up a win. I know you talked about that last week, but I think any time an associate beats a full member is is something we, we worth celebrating. Yeah, as you say, uh, this podcast very much uh, endorses associates beating full members. And speaking of associates beating full members, Namibia has started off well in their series against Zimbabwe. They beat them in the first match. They're playing a five-match T20I series in preparation for the upcoming Africa qualifiers. Zimbabwe and Namibia, probably the two top favorites for that competition. Uh, Maybe Uganda in the mix. The first game, good bowling effort from the Namibians, um, restricted Zimbabwe to 121 for nine in their 20 overs, and then Nico Darwin hit 80 not out, just thrashing it uh, all over the place of 44 deliveries, and they chased it down very comfortably, 122 for three in 13.4 overs, so very easy victory. Um, good effort from uh, the bowling, as I said, Gerard uh, Erasmus with three for 15. You love to see it, his, uh, his filthy off spin, always in the wickets. Uh, Jan Nicole eaton in that first game actually had a very good outing with the ball, one for 11 off three. Bernard Schultz, miserly as usual, one for 25 off his four overs. Yeah, and then the, the chase was uh, pretty much a formality after Nico Darwin started going bang. Uh, the second match was a, a real thriller. Namibia posted uh, 198 for three in their 20 overs, uh, with uh, Darwin again recording a 50, uh, Michael van Lingen hitting 67 off 37 deliveries as well. Herod Erasmus in the runs, and JJ Smith blasted a couple of uh, huge sixes towards the end, so nice to see him back in the runs. Ainsley Ndlovu in that game, the only uh, Zimbabwean bowler who really uh, <laughs> who was really spared. Uh, everyone else really copped a pasting. But then in response, Zimbabwe chased it down. Last ball, 200 for five. 20 overs exactly. Sikandar Raza, an absolutely ridiculous innings. 82 not out of 35 deliveries with nine sixes. I, I, 
It was just one of those innings where it looked inevitable from as soon as he got out in the middle. He just looked like he was playing a different game. And the the only question was whether, you know, whether he'd run out of time, not whether he'd get there. And uh, he, he got there on the very last ball, a, a hell of a last over too. He hit two massive sixes down the ground. And then Lungameni managed to get him off strike, which I thought was interesting uh, on the penultimate ball of the innings. But they, they got Raza back on strike and he hit a four, carved it through cover point for... Uh, a boundary and yeah, sealed the deal on on the very last ball. So that was that was a really really good game of cricket. That it's unfortunate not so many people were able to watch because it and of course the upcoming Africa qualifiers and the Asia qualifiers and the America qualifiers. It's all being rather overshadowed by the fact that it's being played while the World Cup's going. So yeah, that's unfortunate. But yeah, great series so far. Zimbabwe also won the third match of the series with another Sekanda Raza half century. Um, so he's finding form at the right time. He It, it really is amazing how much better Rick Raza has got in the last sort of 18 months, two years. He was always he was always a try, you know, a, a very solid performer for Zimbabwe. But the last couple of years, he's been on another level. And I, I think he's going to be one of the main obstacles for other teams in that Africa region going forward. Mm-hmm. The Namibians haven't had too much trouble handling the other Zimbabwean batters. And, you know, I'd, I'd say this Zimbabwe side's maybe it. You know, 70% strength. Uh, they're missing a couple of big names like uh, Sean Williams and, and Blessing Mizurabani, but yeah, you know, it's not a it's not a completely useless team. And the Namibians have, haven't struggled too much with the rest of the players, but yeah, no one no one's been able to get the better of Sikandar Raza. Yeah, I think Raza's definitely improved since he since he sort of gave up the Zimbabwe captaincy. I think that's sort of taken the shackles off him a bit, and he, you know, he top scored in the. Uh... In the first game for Zim for Zimbabwe as well, we won they lost. So he's, you know, he's the form batter, and you know, you, mm. I think you, you, know, you get him out, you tend to tend to win the game. And Namibia have been competitive in the two defeats as well. You know, they're not particularly one-sided games. Nico Davin, he was one of them players who you know, he either scores big or he gets out for almost nothing. You know, there's no sort of half measures with him. He's one of those <laughs> entertaining players who. Who who you know has that sort of impact on the game? It's good to see JJ Smith uh, turning his arm over as well in this series. Um, more JJ Smith is always a good thing for me. That's that's the uh, official emerging cricket policy as well. Um, I think he's he looked a little bit tentative in in the two matches that I watched at least, but he picked up a wicket in both games. So you know <laughs> can't complain about the result. He only bowled one over in the first match. He bowled two in the second, and in the third game he bowled three overs. So it seems like he's easing his way back into it. You know, maybe he's lost just a touch of pace, but he was never an express bowler to start with. Uh, He's more, you know, a guy who relies on sort of lines and angles and and jamming up batters with with a bit of awkward bounce from that left arm angle. So, yeah, I mean, it's good that he's bowling and and hopefully this means he's recovered because he's had a few injuries um, over the last couple of years that have prevented him from bowling. Um, His batting obviously seems like it's uh, not going anywhere, but his bowling has been a concern. You know, there's been a few times in in recent times where we've seen Namibia play him just as a specialist bat, sort of batting at number five in the middle of order, which you can you can probably get away with having JJ Smith in that role in a T20 at least. But yeah. you know, going forward, if he's not able to bowl his full quotas in say a 50 over match in the next edition of Cricket World Cup League Two, that that will leave a hole in their bowling lineup. Another interesting one is that JP Kotzer is back in the team and and instead of opening the batting he's down the order around sort of number five and six looks like they're pretty happy with the michael van lingen nico darwin partnership in t20s which is 
good that they've found a, a settled lineup because they have certainly experimented and shuffled around a lot with that opening combination. Um, Michael Van Lingen especially has had quite a lot of partners and he's only you know started being a full-time member of the team for, for the last maybe year or so. So yeah, hopefully they've found a combination they're happy with because... Um, I think I think it works well in T20 at least to have Darwin. You know, he doesn't waste too many deliveries if he doesn't get going. He, yeah. As you say, either, he either goes big or he just does nothing and and lets the rest of the team. Um, you know, he doesn't scratch around, so that's helpful. I'm I'm interested to see where they go with JP Kotzer because for so much of his career he was an opener. So whether he adapts to to being down the order and he's not keeping either. So it's it's interesting that they've got him as a specialist bat, or maybe you know maybe he's going to kind of only play home matches or, or something like that because the reason he originally retired was was to do with um, sort of various family work commitments. Um, so, you know, if Namibia is touring around the world, maybe he won't be able to join them. So that's maybe something else to, to keep an eye on. Yeah, you, you, you sort of maybe he's replacing, you know, David Vise with a bat who obviously not available for this series. And you know, he did, you know, he did well in the, uh, in the third game. He scored 31 from 28 balls. Uh, sort of provided a you know steady bat in the middle order there, and I think you know sometimes you need that in T Twenty if you, you're the openers. You know if Nico Davin fails, you want somebody who's a bit maybe more sensible to 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 come in and replace him, and I think that's the sort of role he's he's going to play in this side. And and looking ahead to the the Africa qualifiers where Namibia will come up against against Zimbabwe, <laughs> obviously the game plan is uh, point number one is dismiss Sikanda Raza uh, as soon as possible. Yeah. But after that, the batting, I think, is shaping up pretty well. I wouldn't, you know, if I'm the Namibian setup, I, I wouldn't be too worried about their batting. Maybe a couple of questions about where you fit everyone in. But the bowling is maybe more of a question mark. And we've seen that with Erasmus. I mean, he always rotates his bowlers a lot, but he's certainly been giving everyone a go, you know, six, seven bowlers uh, each game. Uh, Shikongo, I think, is a bit of a question mark. I, I like Shikongo, but he's looked a bit sort of toothless. He gets it to swing early, but if there's no movement on offer, he, he doesn't quite have the pace to trouble batters, especially like a Sikanda Raza in full flow. Um, and, and so I think that's a kind of a question mark is, you know, he's still young. Can he add just a, just a bit of pace so he's, he's a bit more zippy and, and has something in his arsenal if the ball's not moving early? Otherwise, yeah, he, he is a bit kind of hittable. Whereas Tangeni Lungameni actually is, is an, a good example of a bowler who in the past has been, yeah, quite hittable. But he's added a little bit of pace, uh, I think, in, in recent times. And also he he's added a few more tricks. He's got a few more tricks up his sleeve. Um, watching the way they tried to defend that total in the second game, it was interesting. They, they were definitely targeting the sort of wide full toss strategy Lungameni mostly pulled it off but he, he just he just sprayed a couple too wide um and and that allowed in the last over uh, a bit of the pressure to come off so they know what they're doing it's just a matter of execution for a lot of the bowlers so yeah i, I where, where do you see their bowling going into that africa qualifier where they will come up against uh raza again and, and various other batters from the regional regional game yeah i think yeah, as you say they've got they've got the skills and they know what to do but the execution perhaps isn't always there chicago he, he's he's one of those players who he's like the bowling equivalent of nico davin i, I suppose if, if he comes off he's he's really good mm. but if he doesn't he, he gets pumped and doesn't do too, doesn't do too well and um yeah that's true I've, I've seen him put in really good and really bad performances yeah i mean in that african qualifier it's it's a, i think it's a 17 pool two to progress 
Yeah, Zimbabwe and Namibia are the the top teams, I think, by some distance in in that qualifier. Or no disrespect to to Uganda, but with it being a seventeen pool with no playoffs, you you've got to make sure you perform in every game. You you can't afford to have any slip offs when there's no playoff stage. So if there's a Namibia slip up against Uganda or Kenya, then you could see Namibia not qualify for the for the T Twenty World Cup, which would, which would be a shame. Yeah, it would be because. They've got a very exciting T20 lineup, and I think they would definitely add something to the T20 World Cup. Although, you know, it would also be nice to see Uganda make it to a global event. They're an exciting team in the region, and, and they've been improving pretty steadily over the last few years. Um, and the Africa qualifier starts in the second half of November, the 20th, and goes for a couple of weeks after that. So one to keep an eye out uh, coming up. And over in Nepal, uh, we've had another interesting series. Nepal hosting a tri-series against Hong Kong and UAE. Uh, Nepal were unbeaten in the group stage, and then they lost the final to the UAE, so that was interesting. Uh, Hong Kong also smashed 200 against the UAE to thrash them, but uh, that was a, a net run rate playoff, and the UAE made their secondary net run rate target to make it into the final. So, yeah, interesting little series here. UAE... Not great in their group stage, but obviously did enough in the end to 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 win the final. Got their stuff together. And Hong Kong, some some good points and some bad points. Baba Hayat's 15 ball half century <laughs> against UAE in that last game is probably one of the highlights. Uh, Martin Kotze, he's one that uh, Tim has mentioned. Uh, getting a Hong Kong cap after living in the city for, uh, I believe, he moved there around either a little bit before or a little bit after COVID started. So. Um, he, he's qualified on residency. UAE, I wouldn't say they were playing a full-strength team. They they played a number of guys, a couple of debutants and a couple of guys who've you know been around the fringes of the team. And this series, of course, is leading into the Asia qualifier for the T20 World Cup, which actually gets underway very soon. The 30th of October matches start for that one. So it's it's a good warm-up. It, it's an interesting little uh, barometer of where everyone is. Anshi Rath, back for Hong Kong. That'll certainly help in their campaign. Uh, Baba Hayat finding form, Martin Kotze at the top of the order. You know, their, their batting looks okay, but Nazaka Khan had a pretty miserable run of form. And, you know, if you think Hong Kong are to be challenging, they're going to need all their big names to be uh, to be firing. It, it does, and I think you're going, before this tri-series, I would have said that UAE were going to cruise into that World Cup alongside DePaul. But even though they weren't full strength, they were some... They were near full strength, and I'm just not too sure that both teams are going to qualify now. Hong Kong were competitive in this in this series. You know, they, even the game they lost to the UAE it wasn't it wasn't a one sided game, and you know, they did get thrashed by Nepal a couple of times. And you know, if if UAE slip up in the qualifier, it's two groups of four. You would normally have expected UAE and Nepal to finish top of those groups and then meet in the final after winning the semi-finals, but if UAE do slip up, then they'll probably play Nepal in the semi-final. Only one of those teams qualifies. And, yeah, UAE were just, yeah, well off the pace in that group stage, especially in that last game against Hong Kong. You know, Hong Kong had been terrible, and all of a sudden sort of turned it on. Obviously, Curtsy scored 86. Anshi Rath, good to see him back in the Hong Kong team. 41 and Baba High at 60 uh, from only 20 balls, which... Um, Unfortunately, didn't get to see this game. 60 from 20 balls sounds like a pretty entertaining <laughs> innings. And Vintage Baba Hyatt. Yeah, and you know he got the man of the match ahead of Kurtz, who scored you know, 20-odd more than he did. So, obviously, very uh, entertaining. It's good to see as well, I think, we should say. Uh, Mulpani hosting most of the matches in the Tri-Series. Mm. Uh, they went back to TRU for the, 
to you for the final. I think Mopani, I think he hosted an ODI, a neutral ODI. Was it back in February or March? Yeah, they they played one or two League Two matches there. Yeah, and obviously I think this is the first time Nepal have played there. So yeah, he's, he's you know it's good to see Nepal getting another ground to play in, and then we saw, I think the final again. Andy Leonard, as he <laughs> as he as he does, is the uh, is the Nepal home commentator these days, um, <laughs> and always shares always shares photos and videos from a packed. To you, ground. I think he said there was over ten thousand. Yeah, there. great footage for that yeah, one. Yeah, over ten thousand there again on a work day, you know, in in the afternoon. So you know, Nepal, you know, they 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 certainly love the cricket there, and um, we we always see those big crowds at at TU. You know, and to get a big crowd for a sort of random tri series, that's a sort of glorified warm up for a qualifier. I think it just shows how big cricket is in Nepal and. As I, as I often say, I think if they can get their administration sorted, they are in line, I think, for full membership eventually. Well, that, that that's a big if, though, which is, is the problem, you know. With the, it is it is frustrating because we see this footage and we see, you know, you watch the games and, and there's a roaring crowd and it's a great atmosphere. But then you, you see the news about the administration and, you know, things like a T20 series where half the organisers fled the country after criminal charges. So it's, it's this huge dynamic of... Uh, you know, great popular appeal and, you know, fan interest and, and, you know, a team that's very exciting now, actually, that, you know, the Napoli, especially in the T20 format, they have a lot of uh, exciting hitters and, and a very tidy bowling lineup. So I, I think they're a good unit, you know, they'll bring a lot to the World Cup, assuming they make it. But the contrast between the, the on-field success and the administrative uh Un, you know, lack of success, shall we call it, mm-hmm. is uh, is it's you know it, it's about as stark as it gets when it when it comes to Nepal. Yeah, that just that on that final, uh, you know, Mohammad Wazim, UAE skipper, has been crucial for them getting runs up the top. I think Vrijit Aravind, he still just seems to be struggling for form a bit. Um, you know, not not quite as fluent as he as he was maybe a year ago, which is you know definitely a question mark for them going forward because you know he, he is such a key part of that you know that lineup. Ariane Sharma actually coming into the team as wicketkeeper is also interesting. Alashen Sharafu, Ayan Afzal Khan, you know, they have a lot of really exciting young guys uh, in the team. So hopefully they can they can fire. I, I think Afzal Khan picked up a couple of wickets in the final and, and really put UAE on a path to success uh, in that game. So he'll definitely be one to watch. But, I mean, assuming the UAE's young players can actually fire, as you say, you would think they should be beating... <laughs> Uh, you know, they should be topping their group, Bahrain, Hong Kong, Kuwait, Group B in that Asia qualifier. But, you know, then you see the way Hong Kong put up 200 against them and mm-hmm. and you think maybe they will slip up. And then, as you say, if they if they come up against Nepal in the semifinal, then, you know, all bets are off. Yeah, I think it's, it's, I mean, it's a shame, really. <laughs> Getting to another bit of format chat here about the qualifying for the T20 World Cup, like only three teams from the Asian region, only two teams, sorry, from the Asian region are going to have qualifying spots um, when the region probably deserves three. Um, you know, We're only going to get two of UAE, Nepal and Oman in the, in the T20 World Cup, and those are three strong sides. I think certainly all three of them are better than Canada, for example. I know people always pick on the, the East Asia Pacific region because Papua New Guinea have a, you know, pretty much a, Straight past, but I think it's the you know, it's the Americas region that's overrepresented in that T Twenty World Cup next year. Um, with obviously having two hosts, neither of which are probably among the top twelve T Twenty teams of the world, and 
West Indies maybe just in the, that top 12, but certainly not top eight, but I'll get in automatic qualifying. When, so you end up with three America's teams in that tournament when really the region only deserves one, and you could probably have give those other two spots to Asia and to Europe, who are the, the stronger regions. So, yeah, it's... I think you're going as you say. We, we we've gone over that that qualifier. Um, it's it's. I think it's not as perhaps as clear cut as it was before this dry series took place. Yeah, and I, I guess that means you know Hong Kong coming into form at the right time. Lenny, yes, in Nepal again, as you allude to commentating uh, on the Asia qualifier. It should be a great event. You know, Nepal playing at home is always exciting, and they've got some uh, some some good opposition uh, in Oman in their group. Malaysia also and, and Singapore in Nepal's group. That's Group A, um, and the top two teams from each group progress to the semi-finals, of course. And the winners of the semi-finals are the ones who go to the World Cup. So we've got a quick group stage and then an all-or-nothing knockout in the semi-finals, which which will be exciting. And I guess to to sort of compare it back to the World Cup, it is disappointing that this qualifier is being played during the World Cup. So. I'm sure there'll be a lot of interest within Nepal for this series and and the qualifying and the ramifications for, for you know whether they make the World Cup or not next year. But in terms of broader cricket audience, this tournament is actually a great product to advertise the game. And the ICC, I think, has really missed a trick with not having this tournament be a standalone, you know, by itself, uh, can you know, able to capture the limelight and, and promote, well, I mean, cricket in general, but specifically associate cricket, because, you know, tuning in and, and seeing Nepal playing exciting cricket in front of a, a you know, a raucous home crowd, that's going to get more interest in the game. So, yeah, it, it's disappointing. And, I mean, especially since <laughs> when, when the ICC moved away from the global qualifiers for the T20 World Cup, if you think back to 2019, when they ran that as a separate premium global event, the global qualifiers were a really excellent event, a good TV product, good, um, you know, good, good for watching all the best teams in the associate game playing it out for for a couple of spots in the World Cup. That was that was a really good product for the ICC. They got rid of that. They've gone back to the regional qualifying, ostensibly with the goal of you know promoting regional cricket as as a product. And you know, in theory, I don't think that's a bad idea. You know, instead of having one exciting tournament that you put some effort into you have five exciting tournaments that you can you know spread out around the year and, and build interest in the world cup i think that's a good model the issue is that they haven't really put much effort into all these tournaments and we're probably going to be back with um <laughs> you know the usual icc tv will be right back everything crashing uh you know the problems and on top of the technological issues it's being played during the cricket world cup so it, it just doesn't make sense yeah you know one of the things the icc said when they they switched to having the regional tournaments was oh well, let us give the regional qualifiers a, a regional finals a higher profile and you know, you're not giving them higher profile if you're playing them during the World Cup. Obviously, the Americas qualifier finished uh, as the World Cup was starting. This is being played entirely within the World Cup. The um, Africa qualifier starts, I think, the day after the World Cup final. You know, at, you know, at the moment, you've got, you know, this, you know, we're recording this on, on Saturday. The Asia qualifier starts on Monday. If you go to the ITC website now... It just redirects you to the Cricket World Cup website, and there's absolutely no evidence that this tournament is progressing. You've got to click about four, you know three or four times to find out it's even happening. So it's not. This isn't giving the regional final a high a high profile, and this is this is the one regional final where you actually want it to have a high profile because it shows 
associate cricket being played in front of a big crowd with a you know a good commentary team, and it, it's a, it's it's a good product to to have there, and the ICC are doing very little to, to promote it, unfortunately. Yeah, and I mean this uh, this podcast has certainly criticised the ICC for a lot of things. Um, plenty of stuff that the ICC does is kind of not really the organisation's fault because it's it's controlled through the board. But you know when they schedule tournaments, that's entirely in the organisations to control. So you know they can't really blame anyone but themselves for doing this. Um, so yeah, it's just incredibly disappointing that you know we know that the Cricket World Cup you know top level events are, are determined very much uh, from the full member side of things. But in, in terms of qualifying tournaments. You know, the, the full members generally don't really care about that. So there's no reason why, you know, the de- development team, which truly believes in this product, as as we know, you know, why couldn't they go to the tournament directors and, and you know, get them to just coordinate a little bit better? There's no, uh, I, I don't see any real log- logistical reason that they have to play the, uh, the qualifiers during the World Cup. So... I don't know, it just seems like either bad coordination or, or bad decision making. And, and yeah, as you say, it's very disappointing because they have a great product. And, and this is something I say a lot, but the ICC, they, they don't seem to know the value of their own product. They they really are promoting associate cricket, even though it's often the most exciting cricket. And it, this goes back to a point Burtis made a, a little while ago, which is that the ICC's role and product in the cricketing market is international cricket and they need to be building a market for international yeah. cricket and this tournament is is a good product to be doing that with yeah you know, it goes about you know obviously we, we we haven't really spoken about the uh you know the all the conversations that are going on now about one day international cricket i you know, i saw there was a piece on crick info recently listing the top 20 odis of all time and it had the 2019 world cup final as number one which yeah it was a great game one of the best games of cricket ever played, but then he said it was the last great ODI, which is just nonsense. Mm. You know, there's been lo- there's been plenty of great ODIs in the last four years. Obviously, you know, the Netherlands-West Indies game at the World Cup qualifier, where you've got, you know, 370 players, 370, and then a super over where one guy scores 30 runs and takes two wickets. That's a great ODI. And that wasn't even, that wasn't even in the top 20 ODIs of all time. Um, and there was, you know, some ODIs in there that I'd forgotten ever happened. Um, so, um, yeah. yeah, you know, ODI cricket has been superb in the last couple of years, and but the ICC did so little to promote it. Everybody thinks the format's dead. Well, and and the Super League, in fact, uh, that's another example of this lack of promotion because. You know, yes, it, it was killed off by the major full members, and you know you can't blame the ICC for that. But you can blame the ICC for barely talking about it, and you know not doing a lot to actually promote the Super League's existence. And it it just is really strange. I, I guess it's a sort of a, a symptom of the general dysfunction of having the ICC be a, basically two organisations shoved together, of a you know, development uh, organisation shoved together with a sort of coordinating body for the interests of full members. But... And, and you know, what, I think it was somebody from Cricket Australia now was saying, oh, we need to bring back some context to ODI cricket and bring back the Super League. And you know, mm. this is, you know, probably international cricket is at the whims of whoever's running the, you know, the relevant member boards and it, it, it shouldn't be that there's better ways to do this and you know it was cricket australia who wanted rid of the super league because they you know they listed as a as a as a benefit of the new future tours program they didn't have any mandated one day in international opponents yeah. 
Yes. Uh, so, and now we've got Cricket Australia saying, oh, we need to have some mandated one-day international opponents. You, there's no sort of coherent strategy here. And you, when when your product is international cricket, and I, you know, I hate talking about international cricket as a product because I sound like a, 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 a marketer and I'm very much of the Bill Hicks school that um, everybody working in marketing should kill themselves. <laughs> um, but but um, you know, if, if, you're, if, you, if you have a product, you have to have a coherent strategy to promote that product. It's just, it's just common sense and... You know, there is no coherence at the ICC, and I think uh, you know, a lot, a lot of the problems in international cricket, in, with the World Cup format, with how ODI cricket is promoted, and how ODI cricket is apparently dying, even though it's been great for the last eighteen months, that's down to that lack of any sort of coherent strategy for promoting. You, know, you, you, uh, international cricket when I was growing up was the place you saw the best players. You're in the nineties. You're the only time you saw Brian Lara play in the nineties was when he toured England or toured Australia, or maybe he occasionally got a gig with a county um, for a season. But in general, the only time you saw him on TV was in international cricket. And your franchise T Twenty is is now the place where you go to see the best players. So you need to do something different with international cricket, and the ICC aren't doing anything different with international cricket, except at associate cricket where the. You, <laughs> But then they're not promoting what they're doing differently. So your know, four-member cricket needs to change, and it needs to change to something that you know into the way associate cricket has been run for the last sort of twenty years, um, which is you know exciting tournaments, which which have as you know a logical, coherent pathway behind it, and you can't have your products be replaced by something they're not trying to do your product differently. I I always compare it a lot to um, the you know the music industry when. When streaming came along, when it was all, all of a sudden possible to download as much music as you possibly could, you know, the music industry had to start doing something different. You know, they made your know, physical media into a prestige product, and then they, you know, they had, they got subscription services that offered you know, something different and you know, exclusive and whatnot. And, you know, they they changed how they did their business, whereas the ICC isn't responding to the threat of franchise leagues and you know I, i'm not saying that because i, I don't like franchise t20 I, I you know i like t20 it's a it's an entertaining it's an entertaining thing to watch but the icc's product is not domestic cricket the ICC's product is international cricket and they're not doing enough to promote that product yeah and i think this goes back to the conflicting goals of the icc in the sense that you know all the major decisions of the icc run through the full member boards and all the full member boards are trying to start their own domestic leagues so it's difficult in that scenario to see anything but a conflict of interest if you're simultaneously mm-hmm. you know you're in the role of protecting international cricket but also in the role of protecting your country's uh, you know own domestic cricket and, and and that's part of the issue is it just that there's there's no centralized authority it, it just all goes through the interest of the full members and i guess i mean this is a very uh, emerging cricket place to leave it but uh, you know it's been i think it's been 10 years now since the wolf report came out and none of the recommendations have been followed, really. But I think all of them are still just as relevant in, in terms of uh, governance and you know the game being run for a small number of uh, interests rather than the benefit of everybody. And I, I don't know. I mean, y- y- the other point, I think, more on a more practical level, you, know, you talk about the, the benefit of franchise leagues being where you see the best players, and, and that's true. But 
maybe an underrated benefit of franchise leagues is context because mm-hmm. you know, if you're watching an IPL, you know exactly what your team needs to do. They have league matches and there's context and narrative and then they have their playoff games and there's context and narrative yeah, yeah. and then they have the final. Yeah, there's a there's a beginning and a middle and an end and it all sort of is coherent whereas international cricket, I know they've tried to bring in the test championship but you know, nobody really seems to know what's going on with it because again, it's not promoted well. Well, yeah, I mean, I like the Test Championship. I, th- I think it's, I think it's great. I really enjoyed the finals. But the issue is, it's sort of, <laughs> for the average cricket fan, the the Test Championship is sort of this, uh, you know, mysterious black box. And at the end of a couple of years, you have a final, and you know, well, the final, that's nice. But how did they get there? Nobody really knows. Partly that's to do with the the scheduling issues and you know having win percentages because not everyone can play the same number of tests and and all that kind of stuff. Look, fair enough. You know that's that's not really the ICC's fault, but it's definitely. I mean, it's a similar to the Super League. I remember when Pakistan was touring in Australia, and I, I actually tuned in to the radio commentary of that series to to see if they would mention the World Test Championship points on an offer. And I listened to a pretty good amount of several tests and not once did they mention the World Test Championship. And, you know, that's the domestic broadcaster and, you know, that's not Cricket Australia's fault necessarily. But it just goes to show kind of the mentality in cricket is still built around this kind of international touring structure rather than the idea of narratives. And and that's what franchise cricket offers, as well as the best players, is narratives. You know, and you know, the, the, the Tory model dates from a time when you, know, you, you, you played these long series because you know, the first internationals were between England and Australia. And in those days, it took absolutely ages to get to Australia from England. Um, you, know, you, were, you, were, you had to go on a boat for two, two months. And, but you know, now it doesn't take ages to get to Australia. Uh, but we're still, still playing international cricket like it does. Yeah. Well... <laughs> This is a very uh, very emerging cricket place uh, to end the podcast, I think, but uh, I agree. And um, maybe maybe on a more positive note, we could say that all people currently working in marketing should go work for the ICC in, instead of uh, offing themselves. Yeah, maybe that's a bit more of a positive, <laughs> positive viewpoint because they desperately need it. Um... A, more, a more productive use of their time. <laughs> yes. Well, it's a pleasure as always to talk to you, Andrew Nixon. Yeah, a pleasure as always, Nick. And our listeners can, of course, follow Andrew Nixon on Twitter, AndrewNixon79. And he does also write for Cricket Europe uh, periodically, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, Once again, thanks for joining us, Andrew, and thanks for joining us, all of our listeners.